You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. The average golfer gives plenty of thought to the type of clubs he carries and the balls he plays, and very little thought to the surface that golf is played on, which is a significant factor in overall enjoyment of the game. Well-maintained tee boxes, lush fairways, and greens that are consistent and run true certainly require an investment of time and money. But what makes great golf courses possible is the many decades of turf grass-related science and experimentation that have been the lifelong passion of individuals like Professor William A. Meyer, who is our honored guest on Golf Yeah. It's safe to say that few people in the world know more about turf grass than Professor Meyer. The short version of his resume is six pages long, and here are just a few highlights. He holds three degrees from the University of Illinois, including a BS in horticulture turf and a master's degree and a doctorate in plant pathology. Over the course of his long career, he's headed up research for two commercial turf seed companies, been president of his own turf grass breeding company, taught at graduate level in the Department of Crop Science at Oregon State University, and currently serves as the C. Reed Funk Distinguished Professor of Grass Genetics at the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences at Rutgers University in New Jersey, where he's also the director of the Turfgrass Breeding Project at the Center for Turfgrass Science. Professor Meyer belongs to just about every turfgrass-related professional organization on the face of the earth, ranging from the American Society of Agronomy to the International Seed Federation, and he is the recipient of scores of industry awards and recognitions, including lifetime membership in the Turfgrass Breeders Association. Dr. Meyer's lifelong mission has been to develop turf and forage grass that have improved performance, greater seed production capacity, higher resistance to disease and insects, and increased tolerance to heat and drought. And he's traveled all over the world from Spain and Sweden to Inner Mongolia in search of ancient breeds of grass that can help achieve those goals. Our podcast mission over the next 30 to 40 minutes is to gain some basic insight into the turf grass world to see what's going on at Rutgers Golf Turf Grass Management School, and along the way to see if we can learn a few things about grass that might improve our appreciation of the golf courses we play on, as well as our performance from tee to green. Professor Meyer, if you're still awake after that long introduction, welcome to Golf Yeah. Yeah, it's a pleasure to uh, be on this. I have spent my 44-year career in turf. A little bit about my background I grew up on a dairy and livestock farm west of Chicago, 25 miles in Lyle, Illinois. When I was 12 years old, my father decided to go to work in the turfgrass industry. He went to Purdue for a winter to learn turf, and our neighboring golf course thought he'd be a great superintendent. So he went to work there when I was 12. I started working there as a young Man, when I was 16, I helped mow greens, managed the golf course. We had two 18-hole course in Lyle called Woodridge. My father was always in agriculture, 
And our family, I was very much involved in 4-H, went to the University of Illinois, spent eight years there, undergrad and graduate school. One interesting year of my life I spent in central India, working on root diseases in central India as a pathologist. It's probably the most challenging period of my whole career, to say the least. So one of the other interesting tidbits for sports people is I was a walk-on on the football team, the University of Illinois. When Dick Butkus was a senior, I was a freshman guard. And I was on the scrub team that went and played against the varsity four days a week. And Dick Butkus was my blocking assignment about 80% of the time. I survived. I was banged up pretty seriously. There was a fullback by the name of Grabowski who played for the Green Bay Packers. He was an All-American. And I used to have to tackle him in drills. So I did that for a year. My grades were suffering. And I decided that I was only five foot nine, two ten, and the coach Pete Elliott said, No, I can't give you a scholarship. I'd love for you to come out and play another year. And I said, No, I have to study. So I graduated with a very good grade point, but it was a tough decision for me because I love football. But that's kind of an interesting thing in my background. Yeah, that is. Now, do you stay in touch with Butkus? No, I have with the Alumni Association. Through That's my only contact. I did get a letter for that year from Illinois, and but I saw him when I was there this last year at the alumni gathering that they had for sports people. So anyway, I have a lot of friends there, and uh, <laughs> I just want to add that. I don't know if it's interest to people, but a lot of people here go, whoa, you really did? Yeah, no, that's a great story. But listen, uh, getting back to the original uh, part of your story, it sounds like grass is in your blood. I mean, you thought it's a very young person. My parents would go to the National Golf Course Superintendent meeting every year. They would come home with all their trinkets. And I remember the kids would line up at the door to get the cups and hats and everything that they would bring home. So, yeah, I've been in the industry my whole life. His superintendent group in Chicago gave me a lot of scholarships academically. And so it's been in my blood a long time. Yeah. But you didn't start out in academics. You only went to the commercial side of turf grass. Yes. When I graduated, I went to work for a little company in Chicago that had sod farms all over America. And I worked there three years as a Kentucky bluegrass breeder for Mr. Ben Warren, who was a legend in the sod industry. And after three years, because of his health, he wanted to sell out. I couldn't afford to buy him out. So I applied for a job in Oregon, met him, Mr. Bill Rose, at a turfgrass conference at Rutgers. And I was the speaker, and so was he. And we ended up chatting late into the night, and I applied for and got a job for those two corporations in western Oregon, south of Portland. And they gave me an opportunity of ownership if I stayed around three years, which I did. And uh, ended up owning half of the research company and 5% of Turf Seed 
Incorporated. Okay. Now, I didn't realize this, but my some of the research I've done, the turfgrass industry is enormous. Do you have any idea the size and scope of either in dollars or number of people? In New Jersey, when we did a survey, it was worth, I believe, 2 to $3 billion, the turf industry, and in, just in New Jersey. And like the grass seed industry is probably a 4 to $5 billion company. There are big companies like Pennington and Scott's that sell other things. But the seed industry itself is probably worth well in excess of $5 billion. If you take those and compare them to corporate America, a $5 billion company is sort of medium to small. And this is the whole industry. And a lot of it has to do with family ownership. And so it's divided many ways between many companies, mostly in Western Oregon, are the seed companies, Eastern Oregon, Idaho, Washington, are all areas, a lot of, of seed companies. Yeah. You know, I used to live in Skillman, New Jersey, and I lived across from a, quite a lot of sod farm. I don't know if it's big in comparison to some of the sod farms you've seen. Are you familiar with that one that I... No, I really, I'm not sure. They do a lot of infields. Yeah. Uh, baseball. Well, I mean, the sod industry here down in Tuckahoe... They grow sod down there for almost every athletic field that uses natural turf. They, you go around their farm, they say, well, that's the Eagles field. There's Pittsburgh. There's a certain college, you know, and they grow on a custom basis turf. And they also use their thousand acres to hold soccer tournaments on the weekend and one of my colleagues, Dr. Bonus, her daughter is a great player. I think she goes down there and plays tournaments down in Tuckahoe. So, can sod be that different? That teams would specify a certain type of grass, or well, different parts of the country would require different fields because refrigerated trucks are available. They can ship it quite a long ways. And I have a friend down in Palm Springs. It's called West Coast Turf. And they have an agreement with the NFL. They supply a very high percentage of all the high-end games that are played by the NFL. And again, some of them are Bermuda grass overseeded with ryegrass. Some are bluegrass ryegrass. And, but they supply all of the Bermuda-based sod for a big part of America when there's a need. Okay. Now, you've been all over the world in, in search of the perfect bluegrass. Can you talk a little bit about some of the places you've been and, and maybe some interesting stories involving humans or animals that you've run into in your travels? Well, it's interesting because when I took this job in 1996, moving from private industry, Dr. Funk was wanting to hand the reins over to me to run the breeding project. And we sat down and talked about a startup package. And what I would like to do specifically to accomplish while I'm here at Rutgers. And so I put in my package to have a quarter of a million dollars to do collection work back in Europe. And the reason we go to Europe is all of the grass seed, all of the cool season grasses that are in America came with the settlers when they moved here. So if they were from Germany, they probably brought bluegrass and fescue. 
And if they were from England, they brought fine fescue. And everybody brought some seed because they were used to lawns there and pastures. And they knew that our native grass, especially here in the east, was switchgrass, which is a big, leggy native that you couldn't grow as turf. So they would bring that material in bags or in hay with them when they came. Like my family moved here. There were 28 families that were related to my family that moved from Alsace-Lorraine on the German-French border in 1852. And this large group of families all moved west of Chicago in Lyle and Naperville. And they brought seed with them to plant in their lawns, in their pastures. So the idea of me going back collecting was to broaden the germplasm base, bluegrass and fescue and ryegrass and bedgrass for use in breeding work. And so in the last 22 years, we have collected over 40,000 collections from every country in Western Europe and part of Eastern Europe. We've also been Inner Mongolia. We have collected all those. We can't bring the vegetative roots in America because of laws. So we leave the seed, we produce it in Europe, and we get it here a year later. And we bring it in 98 pure. So we go through inspection, and we've never had a shipment rejected. In terms of my favorite areas for bluegrasses in Europe, they would have to be Scandinavia, Germany, Northern Italy are the primary bluegrass areas. We've had a breeding program on bluegrass to develop the perfect bluegrass at Rutgers since 1962. And the big leap in developing that great bluegrass was Dr. Funk and his students at Rutgers discovered that the flowers of this species open at midnight. And they are asexual. So there's a male and female plant part on the flower. But what happens in nature by morning is a cell from outside the sexual embryo becomes the embryo from the mother tissue. Thus, it's asexual through seed. I'm just trying to come to terms with the fact that grass is having sex on my lawn 24 hours a day. It's not something that never occurred to me. <laughs> well, you wouldn't think so. But these only do it when you're not mowing them closely and they can produce, they have to be thin enough of a stand to develop the seed heads to grow up a couple feet. So we bring them in the greenhouse now following the methods developed here at Rutgers. And we actually make crosses by sending our graduate students in the greenhouse and our technicians between midnight and 4 a.m. And if we sprinkle pollen from one bluegrass source on another bluegrass source, we can make sexual hybrids. If we waited till morning to do it, they would all end up like their mother with no variability. (laughs) So these are neat little packages that exist once you have an apomictic asexual 
variety of bluegrass. Wow. And now, when you create a hybrid, do you brand it? I mean, is like a star where if you discover it, you can name it? Well, we name all of them. We've developed, since I've been here at Rutgers, I think we've developed about 70. And yet, the greatest bluegrass that has occurred was one that I just was looking at material at Rutgers when I moved out west, and I saw a turf plot, 1528T, and I said to Dr. Funk, I really like that grass. And he said, no, you won't like it. It's too dark. And I said, no, there's no such thing. So we developed that variety, and we named it Midnight. And it was, again, apomictic, even though it came from a cross. It recovered the apomixis, the asexuality, and 99% of the seed that come off that mother plant are identical to Midnight. And it stayed that way since 1982 when we released it. So, and the amazing thing, and why I'm very proud of it, is that variety is still in the top 10 out of 140 varieties in the national test. Wow. So it's still in the top 10. So do you own the intellectual property for that breed of grass? I mean, we did for 20 years during the period of the protection. And then it becomes everybody's grass to grow. Okay. And then do you get royalties from companies that use that seed or sell that seed? We got royalties on midnight until the patent was up. And now my friends out in Oregon are continuing to grow it and manage it, but we're not involved with it any longer. While I've been here, I have probably about a dozen varieties that we're extremely proud of that are being sold. Sure. That's great. You know, I'm curious to know, I mean, you go to a foreign country and you're driving along, I'm just envisioning how this happens, and you see some grass that catches your interest. Do you have any stories where you jumped out of the car and you were met by a farmer with a gun or a bull looking to take you? <laughs> we don't go on private property at all unless we have permission of the owner. We have been, we mainly, for example, I drove from northern Italy all the way to the bottom in the shoe at 1,200 foot elevation in a small Renault for 10 days with my Dutch cooperator that does the collection work with me and one day we were in a pasture and we got chased by a very large german shepherd we have been asked many times what in the world we're doing with our pocket knife out there in the field we have been in italy where a cow was laying right in the middle of a lovely fine fescue patch that came from a seed 100 years earlier. And we had to move the cow in order to make the collection. That's one of my memorable experiences. But of those 40,000, I go over every May and evaluate the collection. Usually there's 4,000 or so. And we keep the top probably 25% that I select as being something that's unique, disease-resistant, attractive, and leafy enough that I know it'll make a turf grass someday. And the others, we behead them, and we never see them again. Oh, 
Okay. You know, it's funny. People think of academics as being white collar, ivory tower, but you literally get your hands dirty in what you do. I mean, you're crawling around on your hands and knees and digging up dirt. Yes. And it used to be a lot harder for me this past May. My daughter and I both decided to go on a diet and I lost well over 50 pounds in seven months. Good for you. The idea of getting it out of a Renault in Europe is a lot more palatable today than it was back last two years ago. I mean, that was uh, getting in and out of a small car 115 times a week is not an easy chore, you know. (laughs) So, But we've gone all over Europe. This friend of mine, Peter Denhan, is a brilliant botanist, and he works with us, and we've had a great experience working together all these years. Could you give us a quick tutorial? I know that you could probably lecture for weeks on this topic, but the history and the significance of turf grass goes back many thousands of years, you know, for purposes other than sport. Can you give us a few interesting historical facts or just to provide listeners with a basic understanding of the role that turf grass has played in history and culture for centuries? Well, for the upper two-thirds of America, we grow what we call cool season grass. The bottom one-third is primarily warm season that came from Africa or Asia. The northern two-thirds is cool season that came from Western and Eastern Europe. And we have known for a long time that they were part of the pastures in Europe. And if they could live under the mowing of a sheep or a goat or a cow or a horse, especially a horse with two sets of incisors, that they had to persist at low mowing. And so those grasses that were superior to that close cutting height were the ones that expanded and took over the mountains of Italy. And for a place like Poland, I've been all over Poland in a car with Peter. And everywhere you look in Poland, there's Kentucky bluegrass growing in the cemeteries, in the sidewalks, in the parks, in the home lawns. It's all bluegrass in the pastures. And so instead of Poland, it could be called Poa land because that grass is everywhere, and it's widely used in there. So, I mean, it was all part of the cattle. It was all part of lawns. When Dr. Funk came here in 1960s and became the first full-time turf grass breeder, he walked all over the East Coast and the West Coast and the mountains and collected grass that had been, you know, in turf for one to 200 years since they were planted. And the grasses he found, he brought back here to New Jersey, and they all became, for example, the first perennial ryegrass came from Central Park, and it was 13 patches that were 10 feet in diameter of a bunch-type grass. So they had to grow slowly and take over an area. So he had walked 10,000 hectares of land over 10,000 hours in his career. And that's why I decided to switch gears 
and go back to Europe. Oh, okay. So that's the reasoning behind it. Okay. I do want to talk about golf a little bit. Before I do, can you talk a little bit about Rutgers? Because I know that it has one of the oldest and most respected turf grass management schools in the country, maybe the world. Could you give us a snapshot of the curriculum, the faculty, and the type of students and careers that they're? Well, the amazing thing here at Rutgers, because we have a center for turf grass science that has 13 PhDs that are full-time in turf, and that is a very large number compared to any other university in turf. And that provides that we have great teachers. We have a lot of graduate students. We probably have 20 PhDs or masters in turf going on right now. Since I've been here 22 years, I've had 11 and that have gotten PhDs. And they're now out running University of Minnesota, working for Bayer, Monsanto, working on the East Coast, and wherever they're starting a turf program. So we're creating some competition for ourselves by educating these young people. But I kept one of our top students, that's my number two person here at Rutgers, Dr. Stacy Bonus. She's got her PhD in the early, well, it was about 2002, and she's been here ever since, uh, breeding bent grass for golf courses and many other projects. So she's really my backup. But she and so many of the people, when Dr. Funk talked me into leaving industry, he said, you can develop all the grasses in the world, you know, which I have over 400. But what you'll be most proud of are the students that you develop. And I can tell you, he was so right. I am so proud of all these great students. What other types of careers do they pursue other than going into academia? Well, one of them is the number three person in biotech in all plant material in China. He's an officer in a large corporation in China doing biotech molecular work on corn, soybeans, and grass. We have many that are technical people with Bayer or Syngenta, and we have many, some that work for USGA that are got master's degrees, and we have many that have their own companies. One of our graduates was a breeder, and now he's the head of agronomy in Oregon, and one of my other students just finished, and he's going to work as a private breeder for a corporation in Oregon in March. I have another one, quite a few others that are in the seed industry that are going to work for companies, for example, as a technical lead of turfgrass science on the East Coast, for example, of a large company. So there are many jobs. There are very few PhDs that ever go into golf course management, but some with master's degrees do. And one of them is at Baltusrol. That was a master's from here that I worked with, but he wasn't my student. But they're all over the place. Now, Rutgers, though, does have a program dedicated exclusively to golf 
turf grass management, correct? And the curriculum covers far more than just the biology aspects. I was kind of surprised. We have an amazing program that is maintaining large numbers. We have about 80 students a year that come for one week in the fall or one week in the winter period that go 10 weeks and learn nothing but turf grass management having to do with dealing with the membership, dealing with budgets, dealing with interviews, dealing with diseases, insects, weeds, physiology, calibrating equipment. We teach all of that in 20 weeks. And when those students graduate from here with a certificate, they are really well-trained to work immediately as an assistant. We have some that come here actually as a superintendent. And so there's a wide range, but many of them, about a third of them now, already have a bachelor's degree, maybe in psychology or art or accounting. And they decided they wanted to work outdoors. So they went into golf management. And the ones that already have a bachelor's and then get the certificate in the GCSA, they really encourage you to have a bachelor's. And it doesn't have to be just in turf. They want you to show those, you know, academic credentials. And so we have that program. I just taught 23 students that were from all over the world, one from Nigeria, one from Europe, that were here for three weeks learning an intro in the turf. And one of them was a Greens chairman that took the course. And the one from Nigeria was just a turf person that wanted to learn. So we have a wide range of students, but we're very closely tied in to the GCSAA, Golf Course Superintendent Association of America, which is where my dad was for 35 years, who is now passed on. But my award that I received from them, unfortunately, after he passed away, was the service award to that organization. And it was probably the most difficult award that I ever received because it came from them. So I had been in the group for 37 years and they honored me. And it was, it's the one that means the most to me because of that. Yeah. So you have a firsthand insight into the world of golf course superintendents. And I had read somewhere that, surprisingly, maybe this is, is incorrect, that the turnover is rather high because at a club, if there's a problem with the greens or they don't like the way that the fairway looks or plays, the first person to point a finger at is the superintendent. Is that true? Does that happen often? Or You know, what really causes that is the turnover in generations at a golf course somewhat. In other words, you've got a group of people on the Greens Committee of a private club, and they all pass the ownership of that to younger people. And many times younger people will come in and decide, I think we need to get a new look for our course. So this happens. I belong to a little golf course in Atlantic Islands. It's not little or 400 members, but it's close to my home. 
So I joined it just to get out and play sometime. And it's called Beacon Hill. And they had a turnover where the old superintendent retired. And they brought in a, a young person. They had a large number of candidates. And I had highly recommended two of them, even though I'm not on the Greens Committee and I don't want to be on the Greens Committee. But I was asked for input and they hired one of the two that I recommended. And I'm telling you, he's done a superb job. But the thing is, I sit in the locker room once a week. It's just all I ever make it there at the most. And I'm amazed by how everybody that's a member is an authority on turf grass management. <laughs> right. And they why are they airifying? Why did they grow up these long roughs that I can't find my ball in? You know, or why did they leave the roughs? This golf course is quite narrow. The fairways are not wide and sweeping like Trump National in Colts Neck. It has narrow fairways. It was built in 1896, and the greens are rather small. It wasn't a big name architect, but it's a nice course. It's had now there's a fellow by the name of Fors that's working on it, and he's putting in a lot of strategic traps. He's making it longer. This golf course, we have to cross the little road that runs through once with a cart, another time with a ball. You know, so it's a little tricky, but it's a great little sporty course and it's very enjoyable to play. But this fellow they hired, Tim Meyer, is an unbelievable superintendent. It just world class. And the biggest problem a little club like ours will have is to keep him there because he can move on to bigger and better things someday. But I, I hope he doesn't. Um, but the job of a superintendent now, they have to be good with people. They have to know how to manage people on their crew. They need to conserve water resources. They have to use pesticides very judiciously. And they have a lot of challenges because the putting greens are mowed closer and closer to be fast. And that makes it harder and harder to keep the greens alive. And it's an art. Some of it, a lot of it's science, but some of it is art. And that's one reason I love being a plant breeder. You know, artistically, we're, other than bluegrass, which is asexual, all the other grasses we breed, you have to put architecture of the plant as part of the variety. And superintendents have a great challenge. Many parts of the country, like Palm Springs, I went down there for a week and I hadn't been there in a long time. And they work all year round. And the ones that are up in Colorado work on the golf course part of the year. And a lot of their crew work on the ski slope the other part of the year. And there are many combinations, you know. My dad was in Chicago area, so they mainly worked with a small crew through the winter, repairing all the equipment, painting all the benches, 
and doing all the things you have to do to make a semi-private course look good. Yeah. So you're a golfer. So what I want to know is, knowing as much as you do about turf grass, does that give you an advantage on a course in terms of putting, chipping, or out of the rough? I mean, do you know things that the average golfer probably doesn't know about grass that could help them? Well, I don't think it helps me because until about 2007, I hadn't really played hardly any golf other than tournaments once a year for Rutgers Classic or something. We have a tournament with 360 golfers from all over the United States that comes to support our fundraiser once a year at Fiddler's Elbow. But, you know, if I break 100, it's a great day for me. For someone, oh, and I'm really anxious to get back to the golf course weighing 50 pounds less because for me to play golf 18 holes weighing 50 pounds more on a 90-degree day was really hard work, even with a cart. So you just recently lost the weight. Is that what you're Yeah, saying? since last May. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. I just, my heart doctor wanted me to lose weight. And when I went to see him last fall, he gave me a big hug. He was so excited that I actually did this on my own. And I had the discipline to stop drinking any form of alcohol, any form of white bread, rice, desserts. And all I live on is green vegetables, avocados, fruit, and lean meat. And that's how I did my diet. But getting back to golf. Talk to us about grain. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about putting and grain. I know nothing about it, and I think most golfers know nothing about it. Yeah, and here's the thing. If a golf course is really well-groomed, which means they go out there and slice through the bent grass and annual bluegrass often to get rid of thatch and to keep it sort of air-fied, and then they air-fy once in the fall, once in the spring, and put sand top dressing on it. I really think that grain is somewhat overestimated. I've seen grain affect a putt, but this business where Johnny Miller would say, well, the water's down here, so the ball's going to break that way, and the grain is coming at him, so he's got to hit it harder. Well, if you're hitting up the hill, you have to hit it harder. But I personally think grain is somewhat overestimated. One of the differences, Gordon, is that the putting green grasses that we're developing today at Rutgers are much finer and denser and have less grain than Pencross, which lays flat. It was developed in the 50s. And yet that's the most popular variety because a lot of people are afraid to go away from it because they know how to manage Pencross. And the new bent grasses are much finer, much denser, with much less grain. And, and then it's a whole different deal with Bermuda grass. They now have those fine, dense varieties like Miniverde and Champion and Tiff Eagle that are much finer and denser. But Bermuda grass can be thatchy if they aren't managing it. 
And I've putted in one time I went to St. Thomas and putted on seashore past Palem. And that is the weirdest grass to putt on that I've ever seen because it, it's like a sticky board that they sell for mouse traps because the grass grabs the ball when you putt it. At least the variety they had on that golf course, which is the only. So you're saying worry about getting the ball to the hole, first of all, and then worry about your line. And then maybe grain is a factor after those first two, <laughs> correct? And having the ability to hit it straight. You know, I mean, I have some golfing friends that I've made at the club that I dearly love. And a lot of them know a lot about the breaks. And, you know, the one friend of mine plays that golf course of ours over 100 times a year. And the most I played the year before last, when I was an active member, was 15 times. Well, he would give me a little advice when we were playing. Like, man, you got to hit it way over here if you want to get it up here, you know. But I really think that knowing, you know, you take a person like Tiger Woods, when he goes on a lot of these courses, he has that book with all the breaks and all of the hills and and everything on the green. And that's really a lot of science involved in getting a putt to go. And yet you still, you have to hit it a certain way, you know. Talk to me about, because I see a lot of people don't repair their ball marks on the green, but I see all kinds of ways. Some people pull it in, some people push it out, some people just seem to do more damage than they do good. Can you give a simple direction on the best and worst way to repair a ball mark on a green? Well, the big thing is, you know, they usually have a tool that lifts that center part that got squished down, and then they bring the edges in to close the hole. And then they step on it to make it smooth, which is what they should do. And there's nothing that irritates me more than to go on a green and have to fix five ball marks that have not been repaired, you know. But you have to be a good enough golfer to get it up to make a ballpark, you know, <laughs> and I'm just getting there. I, but a lot of my friends can launch it and get it way up in the air, you know. But I think the big thing is it has to be closed from the edges and it has to be lifted from the center first before you squeeze it over and bring in the sides. Okay. What about fairway uh, divots? Uh, you know, I see a lot of people, they'll grab their divot, throw it back on, step on it, but you come back the next week and there's a, just a big hole there. Is there any value to putting the turf back in place? Does it regrow them? Well, I would say depending on the time of the year, when we have, you know, a real wet period, a lot of those divots will regrow if they have, you know, a reduced water loss and stress. Many of them a high percentage in the heat of the summer don't survive, but they at least give a smooth surface to the next golfer. And like our golf course, our superintendent doesn't want us to put soil in the divots. He has a crew that goes out and repairs all the divots on the fairways once a week. And because you know, what happens, a lot of people put too much soil or sand mixture and seed 
and some not enough. And But I think most of those poor divots don't make it, but it's a good idea to step them down and smooth it. Now, I'm curious to know, do you have a lawn that you take care of yourself? Yes, you- I married my wife in 2006. She had a lawn. Her husband had passed away from cancer, and I was single, and we got together because of our passion for riding horses. We met at a polo event, and she had a lawn, and her husband, Alan, who was a dentist, loved his lawn, and he took really good care of it, and the only fights they ever had were over space, flower beds versus turf. And he had a pretty good bluegrass lawn, but bluegrass used to be the king here, and now the king in the grass seed industry is tall fescue. We have about 100 varieties on the market that became available starting in 1980. And he hadn't used them there when I got married to Jane, who was a chemist at the hospital. I talked her into starting to renovate with tall fescue. And we don't have a perfect lawn. It's 90% perfect with a few of the grasses, but we put seed down every fall to repair some of the damaged areas. And we do have, I think, if you're doing the 25-mile-an-hour drive by my house, you would say we have a nice lawn. Yeah. Do you use uh, chemicals? Do you use uh, fertilizers and weed killers and all those? We do use a limited amount of fertilizer. We never put fertilizer down in the heat of the summer. We do put a crabgrass pre-emergent down, the one called Dimension, which is the most effective one for cool season. And we do put that down. We do put fertilizer again in the fall. We do put a material down for grub control because I still have a lot of bluegrass left in my lawn, and it has a real problem with soil grubs. And it's a very safe material. It's the same chemical that you put on your pet for fleas. And all it does is disrupt the grub growth cycle. So I don't use fungicides in whatever grass that I lose because of a lack of genetic resistance. I renovate in the fall to repair those spots. And my wife is now retired from her job of 43 years at the hospital of blood chemistry. And she is my turf grass manager that does irrigating with good old manpower of dragon a hose and setting the sprinklers. And she does 90% of the mowing with a zero turn radius mower and she drives very fast and gets it done in a hurry. Wow. You married the right girl. Oh man. She's so, great. <laughs> so Dr. Mario, I've taken a lot of your time. I just have a couple more questions. What advice or direction would you give to someone who's interested in I don't know, going into, let's say golf course management or some other turf management related career? Well, you um, know, they really have to try if they want to get a great degree in turf grass science. They have to either do the 20 week or they have to get an undergraduate degree somewhere in turf. 
And those people, the numbers here at Rutgers are down in the undergrad program because our standards at Rutgers undergrad are so high. It's hard to get a whole lot of students in. And most of our students are coming from feeder programs in the junior college, where if they get their two-year degree and get their basic courses done, and they have a grade point of over a B, they automatically get into Rutgers. And that's a lot easier than getting in just starting as a bachelor's. So I really think in the future, a lot of our people in our turf courses end up as baseball managers, you know, big time managers, the Somerset team, the one down south, Trenton. I mean, we have students at a lot of those places. And our sports management group are on a first name basis with all the people running all the athletic fields in football and baseball, soccer, you know, like the Red Bulls. Sure. So it's a double-edged sword. It may be higher bar of entry to get into Rutgers, but conversely, you're better qualified or more likely to get a great job as a result of the stature of having a Rutgers degree. I can honestly tell you that every one of my PhD students got an immediate job. One of them is a postdoc. Most of them is a real job right away without being a postdoc. So I think as a career It's a great opportunity. One of my students really wanted to go to work for the USGA back in his state where he was from. But unfortunately, that job got held up. So he's taken a job on the East Coast, you know, and he didn't get the job that he really wanted in Florida. So, you know, but to me, the big thing that I look for all my students and all my technicians is I want them to continue to grow academically and scientifically and as a turf grass breeder. And once they stop growing, I worry. They have to get better every day. I mean, I'm still learning, and I've been doing this since 1972. You know, that's 46 years. And I've been here at Rutgers 22. And I love my job. People ask me, when are you going to retire? Well, When I feel that the turf grass breeding program has two really good people to run it in the future, then I would feel comfortable of stepping aside. But right now, I love my job. I can't wait to get to work in the morning. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know what? That's my last question, Dr. Meyer, which is over the course of your career, who or what have been your sources of inspiration, either personally or professionally? Well, you know, people like Dr. Funk that was here at Rutgers, this fellow Ben Warren that was my boss in Chicago, my partner Bill Rose is running a business who is now retired, but an absolute tiger, used to fly a B-36 in the Air Force. And I learned more about negotiating from him than I could ever learn from anybody. Maybe Donald Trump might be better, but He was good. There's a fellow by the name of Glenn Burton that was here at Rutgers as a PhD that went to Georgia and ran their program until he was mid-90s in the USDA. He developed all the golf course grasses 
for Florida and the South called TIFF, TIFF Way, TIFF Eagle, 419. Those were all his grasses. I went to see him when I first started the commercial part of my job in Oregon. And he said to me, you know, you can develop these grasses, but if you can't go over and tell the world about them, no one's going to know. So you can't just be a breeder. You have to get out there and tell them about your grasses. So I would say those three and a fellow by the name of James Beard from Michigan and Texas, those two places, he was a eminent professor that just passed away. And another guy by the name of Jim Watson from the Toro Corporation. Those guys, those two, Beard and Watson, were the reason that I was ever honored by my Society of Crop Science. They put me up for all the chairmanships, all the awards. They believed in me, and they were really an inspiration. So those are five people that I would name as mentors. Well, that's great. Listen, I think that your obsession today, I've learned a lot, and you're certainly fulfilling the guidance you got from one of your mentors with respect to spreading the word. Hopefully, the people that listen to this will be inspired and educated by what you've told them. And I thank you for your time, and I wish you the best of luck on the balance of your career. Oh, very good, Gordon. Thank you very much for asking me. Thanks, Dr. Meyer. Have a good day. All the best. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.